Good to, good to see all of you. We've got these sheets coming around. So everyone got one? Okay, good deal. My name's Stan Granberg. I'm the executive director of Kairos Church Planting. And we've been uh, helping new churches get started since 2005. I want to introduce my teammate, Scott Christensen. Scott is the, the newest member of our team, and he is working as a director of recruiting. And so he gets to talk to, to uh, men and women who have that vision for planning something new. So that's my, that's my background. And what we're going to do is something totally different than what is in the program. Okay? Yeah. So how many of you were here yesterday for Caleb Borcher's presentation? Caleb was talking about a millennial church and how do you how do you raise a millennial church? We're going to talk about the churches that most of us are in. We're going to talk about churches that are great or have been great 20th century churches. 20th century church was planted sometime in the 19 60s. There you go. 60, 50, 45, 78, 90. That's a good, those are good 20th century churches. But what's the century that we live in today? 21st. 21st century. And the thing is that when a church starts, it usually is started to meet the needs and the requirements of the people of that generation that started it. You with me there? Mm -hmm. And so it's all designed to reach those group of people and to connect with that group of people. And when we talk about the 20th century and the 21st century, I'll let you into something here. They don't make any more 20th century people. We've made all we're going to make. So I've got 13 grandkids. They are all 21st century people. Guess what kind of churches they're going to go to? 21st century churches. And they're just not going to go to 20th century churches. So any church that started in the 20th century is either going to have to morph and translate into the 21st century, or we're going to have to let that church run its course, nothing wrong with that, run its course, and eventually close its doors. But at that point, we want to see that re be repurposed into new 21st century churches. So we live in one of those pieces of history where uh, we have two millenniums living together. And Caleb helped us really understand why is a 21st century millennial church, why does it look and feel different? So I want us to think in terms of, as, a 20, as 20th century churches, how many of you are going to 20th century churches. I mean, that's the one I grew up in. It's what I'm going to now. I go to a thousand member, fantastic 20th century church. But we're trying to, to figure out how do we become a 21st century church. So what I'm not going to do is spend a lot of time on these first slides. So here's our, here's our question that we hear people asking all the time. How do we get millennials into our church and to stick? Uh, so there's some answers that come out there. Well, we can get a millennial preacher, get someone who's 35 years old or, or younger, and they'll automatically do it. No, because there's something deeper that's going on in there. How do we get young families into our church? Have your church ever wondered that? How do we get young families into our church? 
that, that's, that's the question. So we're, we're going to try to understand how do we help our churches begin to transfer to become 21st century churches. Now, there's a few things here you're going to feel like this, and that's all right. But by the end of it, I want you to feel like this. So I want you to be really thinking about what we're talking about. I'm not going to spend much, much time on this, so just some facts about us as a fellowship. We are a declining fellowship now across the U.S. We are a declining fellowship. The reason is because the majority of our churches were started in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Now those churches that were started in the 50s, 60s, and 70s are beginning to run their course. There's nothing wrong with that if we'll reinvigorate and bring new life for the 21st century. Number, so here's how it looks here. If it's red, it's bad. This is not a political map. If it's red, it's bad. If it's blue, it's good. I, I have a good friend. He knows North Dakota. He said, where did you get those numbers? And I said, well, I, I got them from the 2016-17 data of the... Churches of Christ in the United States, but that was probably fairly old. He said, that is not North Dakota. He said, I guarantee it. So what we have seen is a drastic shift now where our fellowship, if it's red, and you can see across the board here, we're pretty much a red fellowship now. That's a loss issue. So we're a declining fellowship. Last 10 years, we lost over 581 churches. So that's that oh no type thing. Fact number two is we're kind of old and small as a fellow, as as churches, as as congregations. Over fifty five percent are under sixty members. When you start thinking, then what can, what do churches do when they they get stuck in in that size? And it's survival mode. That means over fifty percent of our churches are just surviving, just trying to survive. And the number three that uh, this tells us age right here. Here's where the majority of our churches are, over 40 years of age. What stops happening by the time we hit about 40? Youth. Yeah. <laughs> Energy. Right. Energy. Right. We don't have, you just don't have kids when you're after 40 years of age. And churches that are 40 years old, it's very difficult for them to plant new churches. This is a loss of dynamism. It's a natural part. We need to be down here where there's 50% or less. How are we going to move this bar? There's only two ways to do it. One is we could just knock off a whole bunch of churches until the thing shrinks up, or you, the only way you can make this bar become this bar is to just add a lot of new churches, right? So that's our challenge. But because of our age, we have become pretty much functionally sterile. I just want you to think about that. So we've got some, some significant decisions we have to make. And these are just some of the bars that are focusing us. And here's why I can say that. Because this, this is the number of churches planted per year as we know it. It's not fully accurate because those years have come and gone, but by the records, this is what it is. And this red line is our trend line. So our trend line is that we're, we're not reproducing. Mm -hmm. We 
we're not an actively reproducing fellowship. Fact, here's something you can say. We are an actively resistant fellowship today to new churches. And so if someone ever comes to you and says, hey, this is what I'm thinking of, before you say no, I want you to remember what I've said. We are an actively resistant fellowship to new churches. Well, if we do that for very long, then we will we'll be in some serious difficulties. That's the uh, this is the uh stuff. So I don't want to spend much more time on that. I want to get to, well, what do we do? What do we do here if we've got to do something different? So there are four strategic shifts that I want you to begin to think about. Could our church do this? Because these are the shifts that are going to help you to begin to think differently about what happens at your Sunday worship experience. At your Sunday worship experience. How many of you have Sunday worship experiences, or how many do you have Sunday worship services? Who has a worship service? Mm -hmm. What's the difference between a service and an experience? Mm -hmm. The service is highly programmed, and okay. uh, you know it's pretty much the same thing uh -huh. every time. You just replace the Great. songs, basically, and you got there. You it. go. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, when I was growing up, we had Brother Deacon. Brother Deacon stood in the back and he had a clipboard and the clipboard had the prayers and the song leaders and the songs and all this and Brother Deacon would sit in the back and he'd watch people come in the door and when he saw someone who was doing that he'd put the check mark and oh man if the if the someone who was supposed to do a prayer didn't show up it was kind of scramble for a minute and find someone else to fill the slot because it didn't really make much difference who you got to fill the slot, the object was to fill the slot. They went out, I'm getting these blank faces. Did I, was I the only one who grew up in a church no, like that? No, no. Okay, just wanted to be sure I was in the right place here. Because that was my church. In fact, that was my church uh, at the first church I was an elder at, the Vancouver Church of Christ. In 1996, we moved into Portland, Oregon, became part of the Vancouver Church of Christ. That's how Vancouver did it then. So this is not just uh, ancient history that we're doing this. But today, when we talk about people going to services, what kind of services do people go to today? Funerals. Funeral services. And there's one other type. Weddings. Weddings. Those are really the only services that people go to today. And most people, get this, millennials do not like funeral services. My, when my, my dad passed away a year ago, and my daughter was just, it just kind of freaked her out. She saw her grandmother go up to the coffin, lay her hand on her granddad's chest, and she could not even go to the front. She said, we don't go to funerals. And so we live with millennials who don't go to services, but they go to experiences all the time. And so we need to make that first shift to move from a service to an experience. A service to experience. Um, I don't know, I don't guess we can really get, can we pull those lights down a little bit? Is that possible or are they just going to go off? There, yeah, let's do that. Perfect. Great. So do you recognize, recognize this picture? 
Sure. Been there? Yeah. Yeah. Been there. This is where I've kind of grown up and kind of my kind of churches. And, and that's a great worship uh, service. It's very well planned. But, but look at, this is how millennials begin to describe a worship service. It, it's very static, which means, okay, we can have the same expectations, so we know what's going to happen. It's fairly formal. Uh, it's kind of passive. And for many millennials, it's just plain boring. And so we're thinking, how do we, how do we create an environment where millennials, which is everyone who's being born now, are going to find a home and find a place? When we, we've been doing worship services, but they're worshiping with experience. Here's what an experience looks like. Do you see any difference there? See, that experience, it, it, it's an active thing. It's a dynamic experience. It's participatory. It's emotional. It's tactile. And you go to millennial churches, and there's movement, and, the, and people are getting up, and people are getting down, and, and things are moving back and forth across the stage, and we're being asked to get up and to do things. Um, there are very few millennial churches I've ever been to who have not had a, a walking communion service. I'm seeing Ron Clark out in the hallway there. At Agape in downtown Portland, they have tables that will be set up. And then they have, instead of having servers, uh, one of my friends called it our, our secret servers, service attendant people. Uh, instead of having them pass trays, you go up to the tables and there's a a person or a couple at the table and they invite you in to participation as a group of people around the, the Lord's Supper and you have that happening around the auditorium in three or four or five places. At the Vancouver Church we were kind of forced to do this when we sold the old building to eventually move into a new building and went into a high school and at the high school, they would not let us pass anything in the auditorium. And so we had to get up and walk across the stage. And all 300 people had to get up and walk across the stage to get the Lord's Supper. But it became this wonderful place where you could just look and see who everyone who was there. And it changed our whole sense of participation and who we are. Because now we were participating in an experience and not just a service. Do you get a sense of how the feel of a worship experience and a worship service is? So here's two things you can do. One, in all of your printed material, your bulletins, anything, exterminate the word service. Get it out. Hunt it out. You will be utterly surprised how many places that service word appears. And call it, just say your worship, or your worship gathering, or your worship experience, but take service out. And then as you're beginning to plan, you need to ask the, the, the question is, what will our people experience when they come? What will they experience? And the centerpiece that we want people to experience, isn't it God? We want them to experience God. And we're going to provide them multiple ways and multiple opportunities to experience God in our midst. 
And now it changes the question of our heart as those who are planning our worship experience. We are no longer asking, so wonder if we can get it done in this length of time, and here's what, here's what we're going to do this, and here's how this will happen, and who's going to do this. becomes now, is what I am doing now inviting people into the presence of God where they can experience Him? And the thing is, see, when people experience God among us, life changes. Do you believe that? It sounds like the Corinthian letter. It does. The what? The Corinthian, Corinthian letter. letter. When people experience God, their lives will change. So here's a little litmus test. If you're not seeing that much change happening in your people in your church, it could be that God is not showing up. Because if he's showing up, people will change. It's what he does. It's who he is. It's undeniable and unescapable. And to make that shift in our minds that we are providing an experience where people can meet and gather in the presence of God, it changes everything. Now, it won't change it overnight, but if you'll apply this and work through this, it will begin to change what happens in your church on the every Sunday worship gathering. So shift number one, we're going to do what to service? Delete. We're going to delete it. And we're going to plan for a what? Experience. An experience where people meet God. So that's shift number one. And you can do this. Every church can do this. Shift number two is from podium to stage. You know what the podium is, right? It's a place where you go to stand. It's where the stuff happens up in front, right? And uh, we, we all have these, these podiums. So here's a great podium. This is a great church here. What does this tell you? When you look at that, what, what's the communication piece? Formal. Formal. Very formal. Come in, sit down, and be quiet. Yeah, reverent could be a word. But yeah, come, sit, kind of be quiet, passive. Something's going to happen up there, and we're going to see it. Observe it. What? Observe it. Observe it. Uh-huh. And, you know, here's, here's what podiums are. Podiums are just where people go to stand. That's what they're, they're there for. When we talk about communication, the podium is a very low communication item. It, the, about the only thing that communicates up there is that table right here. And that table, what does it say on it? How did you know that? <laughs> that's about the only communication piece that's up there. But it's become so rote to us that it's just fallen into the background. It's scenery in the background that has fallen into complete meaninglessness. Unless, unless... There's a great book that Tom Rainer wrote called Who Moved the Pulpit? Just yesterday, this is the story. A fella in the church said, you know, we need to move our pulpit. And so he picked it up and moved it to the back so he could stand in front. And he said, I had so much grief. He had to bring the pulpit back. And no joke, this is what he's doing. They said, Every Sunday, he moves it back one-eighth of an inch. 
but it's just stuck in people's minds. But there's just no communication, and ultimately it is completely ignorable. There's no sense of anticipation. There's no sense of something happening. There's no communication. It falls into the background of ignorable. Are you feeling this? Now, here's what a stage looks like. And I just ask people this, so if you've got grandkids, how many of you have grandkids? Which church will your grandkids want to go to? Why? Because this, this says excitement, life, vitality, color. It raises that sense of anticipation. Don't you just wonder, what is he saying? And if you walked in, if there was no one on that stage, just lights on in that stage, what would you think? It's a kid show. You, you could? That's what I think. Okay. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. This, this church, our Easter, uh, the six weeks going up to Easter Sunday, I, I just didn't get the, the pictures changed, but I, like the, I really like this one. This is my favorite one. But they had this huge coffin up here that they created. <clears throat> and they created it by having people write things that they were wanting to die to in their lives, and then they, they, they created this huge, massive coffin. And on Easter Sunday, that thing fell away, and the light pierced the darkness of death. I thought, that's the kind of church I want to go to, because that's the Sunday experience of Easter, where light pierces they got to experience it together. And that was, that was amazing. And so a stage is where things happen. A stage has all this communication. And when people come in, they're, they're expecting, we're developing the sense of anticipation of the presence of God and of something that's going to potentially change the trajectory of my life. It could even happen that the Holy Spirit might show up. It could happen. Because a stage is full of possibilities. And I think our God is a God of possibilities. And so we need to think of, of our stage. And that stage... It, Here's the, the kind of the downside to it. it. It can be easy to think of the stage as just what's up in front, but the stage starts outside your church. The stage starts as people drive by. What do they see? What do they understand happens from the time they, they catch the first glimpse of where your church is at and as they come into the parking lot? And as they get out and as they walk through the doors, what is the sense of anticipation that they're developing? Or Easter Sunday, you know, we, we expected to have 50% more people. And we did. We're, our usual, usual attendance somewhere around 9.50 to 11, you know, 11.50 or something like that. We had 1,500 people for Easter service. We expected something. And so we, we had our greeters all, we have this round building that has 14 doors. 
and it is horrible to try to figure out where anyone is and what's going on. Gina and I, we had a door and a hallway, and then the door into the into the worship center. And she was at one, and Gina's my wife. She was at one end, I was up at the door because it was cold in Easter Sunday in Jonesboro, Arkansas. So she put me outside, you know. So I'm opening the door for people as they come in. Now she is usually at that place. That that's her normal place for greeting, is is that worship center door. The difference was now I was out at front and opening the door, and all I did, literally, all I did was say, Hi, glad you're here. Have a, have a good Easter. That's little things like that, and smile. That's all I did. I, I, I promise, that's all I did. But she said by the time they got to the end of the hallway, they were talking and laughing and smiling and engaged, and she said, That is not normal. Normal is they just come in, eyes glued straight ahead, boom, into the worship center, do stuff, boom, out. That's the normal thing. But something was different Easter Sunday just because someone was, we set a different stage. And they responded to the stage. And when they came into the worship center, they were now anticipating something's different today. So we set a stage. Just like when you have people come over to your house. Don't you kind of get the house cleaned up, put some fresh flowers in, and put some cookies on or, dough or bread to bake in the background so it smells good? But you want people to enter your house and to feel welcomed and comfortable and valued. That's what we want. That's the experience. Because today, for... For many people, to walk into the church is the most scary thing they will ever do in their life, probably even beyond hearing the word, you have a terminal disease. Churches are scary places for people. And our job is to set the table for them. So when they come in, timid and afraid, and hesitant that they begin to say, oh, these people want me here. There's something going to happen. And so think in terms of podium to stage. Here's a couple things that you can do. One is to set your stage, get some external signs and people in your parking lot. A-frame signs. Richardson East Church of Christ, park here. What visitors, welcome here. Guy with a, a yellow vest on who's waving and said, here's a parking place. Just something. Do something. Put something out there. Set a stage out in your parking lot. Now when it comes to your 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 upfront stage, that's a little bit that's a little bit harder to do. So here's what I would suggest is right now, don't go home and say, we've got to change everything up in the front of the auditorium. Change something in the back of the auditorium. Put up a table that's a, that's a welcome table. Uh, put, a, put someone there serving coffee, not just a coffee pot, okay? Because our idea is to connect with people. Get some place where someone is there physically engaging with people. Put it in your foyer, put it in the back of the auditorium. Do something in the back of the auditorium. But you're setting your stage. And as you learn to do this, then you can begin to change the front of your stage. 
Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. So two very simple things, they won't get, as Don said last night, feathers won't get ruffled too badly. If you go to the, directly to the front, it, it can get bad at that point. Shift number three is we're going to move from song leader to worship minister. Now, this, this is a big step. Uh, I grew up with song leaders. I mean, our job was to pick songs and to get us all started. That was, that was our job. And uh, then later on, we kind of began to realize we're probably going to get worship leaders. And so that worship leader is that mid-step between the song leader and the worship minister. So we've got song leader, worship leader, and worship minister. Steve Maxwell is a worship minister. And as he engaged us with worship last night, he brought us in. I, I, this is how I felt. I felt Steve invited me into an experience of the people of God in front of the presence of God. And that's not what song leaders do, but it's what worship ministers do. And so here's, here's the song leader. Have you ever, not just this guy, but you ever recognize the song leader? Yeah. Because this is how I grew up. I was a song leader. Mm -hmm. and, and we talk about participation and that the song leader, we pride ourselves. We pride ourselves in being people of participation. But a song leader does not lead us into participation. A song leader just kicks us off and gets us going and we do the stuff. But here's what a, here's what a, a worship leader does. See, the song leader is a, a minor functionary on the podium in the order of, of our worship service. But the worship leader is the conductor of the orchestra of worship. And now the, when we set that stage, the, uh, the preacher becomes the featured soloist. But the preacher does not conduct us in our worship to the God Most High. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's a whole different way of thinking about this that our worship leaders are conducting the experience. They guide us from the first to the last. They welcome us in. And they, they take us on the journey of God's presence. And in that midst of that journey, they'll, they'll point us to what we are doing and what's happening. And, and they'll give us hints and guide us into the emotions and the content of the experience so we can follow along with them. And then they set the stage up for the, the featured soloist to come and to break open for us the presence of God through his word. And then that worship leader again pulls us in and directs us to the intent of the heart of God after we have heard his word. How do we live? How do we feel? How do we breathe that experience in so that as we eventually leave, we leave going, God has been here. And I leave with him within me. That's the role of the worship leader. The worship minister 
takes an even bigger slice because that worship minister is for the whole church now becomes the one who pays attention to how do we as God's people engage in the life of a holy God as a gathered body of people. And so that worship minister surrounds us and pays attention to us and they are thinking constantly about how do we, how do we bring the presence of God and our people together. And they're always setting that stage up for us. And they're guiding us. It is a, a senior minister slot to be a worship minister. So we've got the conductor. I, I hope that makes sense, too. Every one of the pictures I'm showing you comes from a Church of Christ, except this one. I just didn't, I just didn't have one available to to pull that in, but we do have some worship leaders and some worship ministers in our midst, but they are not song leaders. They're two very different creatures. What I challenge you is to find ways for whoever's in your church to help them engage and to learn to become a worship leader. And the only there's only two ways that I I'm give you that really come to mind with this one is they need to they need to set themselves in the stream of worship music that will speak most clearly and beneficially to your church I mean we used to just have the you know the great songs of the church great hymns of the church those were our streams I will tell you this here's one thing you can do take a deep breath if you're powerpointing Paperless hymnal, get rid of it. That's probably the most disservicing piece of technology that our fellowship has, has fully engaged with. That is no help for us. That's my personal opinion. But I, I, I've seen it too often. So that's one thing you can do. What is the stream that your worship leader, that you can help them imbibe to drink from fully and there's there's multiples of those streams that are out there in our fellowship we have the acapella stream we have the zoe stream we have the halal stream that's just in our in our fellowship and there's streams that are out there much broader than that the uh, the worship music of today i believe is probably the richest that it has ever been in the history of christianity if you haven't seen the, uh, the movie, uh, I can only imagine, would you go to see that? Because it captures what we're talking about here. And when that song comes out, it just, it just pulls so many people into the presence of God. And that's the experience we want to bring to people. The fourth shift, it's a preaching shift. It's preaching from Instead of preaching to belief, we preach to unbelief. So I don't, I don't know how many of y'all are, how many of you are preachers? Okay, I was, here's how I was taught. I was, I was taught that a good preacher is going to spend probably 15 to 20 hours a week in deep level study and exegesis in their office, listening for the word of God, understanding what the text says, so that we can bring application to the people of God. Anyone else taught like that? What we've found is uh, most good preachers today, they're, they're not going to spend, they may spend three to five hours maybe. And then they're going to be out with people. 
and they're going to be talking with people. And they're going to be listening to the stories of people. And see, when we, when we preach to belief, what we do is we preach a proposition of belief. It's something that we're supposed to, to pay attention to, and, and we're going to explain it so that as our people leave, they know this. So preaching to belief is about knowing this. Knowing these things, knowing these ideas, knowing these, these facts, knowing these, these stories. And you got the preacher who's up there who's the expert at it and who knows it and who lets everyone know what about it. And so we're telling people about God. And the, the purpose is for our audience to leave going, ah, I'm good. I'm good. I've been affirmed in my faith. I've been confirmed in the way I'm living life. And life is good, and it's okay, and now I can go out there and engage that big old bad word world that's out there, but, but I'm okay. And it's, 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 a, it's comfort food for us. We come together to be comforted and to get that comfort food of the word of God. And when we leave, we feel good. That's preaching to belief. That's, that's how I was raised, how I was taught. And, and we've begun to realize that most people around us no longer understand the language of belief. They don't even know if they believe God or not. And so somehow, how do we take belief into the context of unbelief? And we've discovered with our church planters that we've got to preach in the context of unbelief and not belief. And so you start not with the proposition, but you start with the question. Do you understand what difference that makes? As preachers, we're not there to find the proposition of truth that people need to know. We're there to understand the question that people need to ask so they can live. These are life questions here. And, and, and so we're going to investigate this together. And so rather than coming up and saying, so let me tell you what you need to know here today, we come up and say, I've got this question. I had this experience. Something happened, and I've been struggling with this. The thing that makes preaching to unbelief so difficult is that we have to first, as the expositors of the word, to understand our own point of unbelief. And where I cannot yet make sense of myself in the presence of the Word of God and what that Word is trying to tell me. And so we invite people to explore it with us. And we don't do it as, a, as this eternal proposition of truth, but we do it as there is a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. And He is giving us some things to explore together. And let's do this. Let's see if we can find out this truth that God is revealing to us. And so as a preacher, you have to learn to, to expose what's in the middle of our hearts. And, and we invite people to come and try this along with us. And most good preaching to unbelief, it's not a, a solo event. It's a team effort. And it doesn't mean that we don't have that preacher on the stage, but that preacher has a team of people. 
That becomes his resources and his, his insights and who that preacher will begin to work with them through the weeks and through the months as they plan, as they study, as they listen. That preaching team becomes part of the shaping. And so as someone preaches, they preach, for, preach from the perspective of multiple voices. And our millennial people, they, they have all grown up in teams. Everything in school, everything they've done their entire life has been in groups and teams. They don't, they don't trust individual voices. They trust the voice of the group because that's how they've been raised and oriented. And when there's a preaching team, there's now the voice of a group that's speaking in to the sermon, speaking <coughs> in to that worship experience. Does that make sense? We're working with a, a church right now that is trying to make these shifts. And what we say, we're in the, the season of moving from default to design. So default, we do, it's the clipboard. We're just make sure we got the clipboard to the design of the experience of what we're doing. So we're moving from default to design. And uh, last week, as we were having a video conference with the leadership group, uh, I was talking with the preacher in front of everyone, and one of his assignments said, do you have a preaching team? No, not really yet. Okay. He's a little older than I am, nearing retirement. This is his really challenging stuff. Mm -hmm. Someone at the end of their career to change their very orientation. But bless his heart, he's trying to do it. And so he does have, they've hired two younger staff people on, and he's using them a little bit as a preaching team. And we were kind of gently pushing him to get a couple of people in the audience who are going to be a preaching team for three or four months uh, with them and trying to get some meeting times and things together. And in the middle of that, I stopped. I said, so here's something that, guys, here's what I'd like you to listen for. Let's listen for the day when our preacher says, you know, I was talking to my unbelieving friend about this lesson today. Here's what he said. <laughs> See, because most of our church planters, they have someone who's not a believer who becomes a sounding board to them, who becomes part of their preaching team. Because see, we're preaching to unbelief. And what happens is, to those of us who are hearing that, is that we become wooed towards God. We're not, as preachers, telling people about God, but we are wooing them towards God. And the funny thing is that for people who have been lifelong Christians and living in the context of the belief of preaching, that when we begin to listen to preaching to unbelief, it, it energizes us. Because now it begins to ask the questions that we've been asking, too. And it begins to raise those points of doubt that you say, man, that's me, too. And now it begins to make the blood run thick and hot. And we're not there any longer just to be affirmed, but to be challenged. To go into the world and say, see if God is right. Mm -hmm. See if what God says has validity in the world around you. See if it answers the questions of the people that you live your life with. 
And all of a sudden now it sparks new questions and conversations with our people at work and our people at home. Because now we're not coming and saying, now you got to believe this. Now we're saying, there was this question that our preacher asked me and I just can't get my mind around it. And if someone says that, what do you think most people are going to do? Ask what what is it? What the <laughs> What's the question? Why do you have problems with it? I thought you were a goody Christian person. I don't have everything figured out. And it sparks the questions. And so those are the shifts that I would like you to begin to think of. So we move from a worship service to a worship experience. We move from a podium to a stage. We move from a song leader to a worship leader. And we move from preaching to belief to preaching to unbelief. And every church can do these. What it will do, it will take you on the journey into the heart of God. And our question that we started with, how can we get millennials into our church, that's really not the correct question for us. Our correct question is really, how many churches will exist for millennials? That's our question. And I would suggest that these four shifts will help you retool your church so that your church exists for millennials, which may be your children, or they may be your grandchildren, and they may even be your great-grandchildren. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that those millennials will not find easily homes in our 20th century churches. But I think those four shifts will give you some very specific guidelines to move from the 20th century into the 21st century so that you create in your church the context of a church that's for millennials. And that means we've got to be very servant-minded people. This church no longer becomes about us and my preferences. You know, preference, as I read it, it is not part of the fruit of the Spirit just not there. If we're going to be people of the Spirit, then our preference takes a back seat because as we've been challenged multiple times this week, the central tenet of Christianity is the statement, the confession of Jesus is Lord. And it becomes Jesus is my Lord. And when he's my Lord, then my preference gets moved off of the driver's seat and into the trunk. I've never figured out a way to get it out of the trunk. I mean, it keeps hanging around there, but at least we can get our preference out of the driver's seat. And you might be saying, well, this will change our church. That's the intention. That is the absolute intention. I hope that next year, if you're here, you come to me, and if I'm here, and say, you know, I took some of those things we talked about in that class, and it has changed some things in our church. I'd like to hear what that story is like. Because that's the only way that we'll have churches that exist for millennials. Four shifts. So, I'll, we've got a few minutes here. Questions? Comments? Okay. Uh, I was just thinking where a lot of these millennials are. They're 
Christian colleges, mm -hmm. such as uh, Herbertine and Harding and David Lipscomb. And, and, yes, and I'm just wondering about the churches that are there in those communities, how well are they doing in relation to the students that are on campus as okay. far as their uh, participation? I know someone who could answer that, but I won't put them on the spot. So I'll, I'll just use my my observations and talking to uh, to Bible professors at most of all of our colleges. Uh, in every every city that we have colleges, the place where there will be more of those college students on any given Sunday will never be the Church of Christ. That's right. Well, what it, whatever it is, it'll be somewhere else. <laughs> so the answer is I think we're doing pretty poorly for the most part on that question. And it doesn't matter whether it's Abilene or Harding or Nashville. Now Nashville's great because uh, we've got Ethos Church there, which is a fully engaged millennial church started by millennials, four millennials, and it's now the, the uh, second largest church in our, our fellowship because that's what they're based for. What they're ready for. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Um, we're making some of these changes, but my question sure. is one about there are a few millennials that are still old school and uh -huh. want to, you know, mm -hmm. put their two cents in. And I just thought, do you have any comments about that? Well, it makes sense if they're still within the confines of our fellowship and they haven't already chosen to leave. It's because this is how we've raised them. So they're they're the children of who we are, and that's what they know. So that's what they're that's what they're with. And yes, oftentimes churches will find that the millennials are very resistant to some of these because they are the hangers on, and not the the main group. So yeah, it says. If you would do this, text COFCC to 5155, it'll bring up a, uh, a form to fill. I'd love to get your contact information. And that'll take you to a place where you can put in your name and your email address and, and send that to me. And also, I believe that's on your sheet as well. So you can take that with you and at your leisure, please do that. I'd like to, to know who you are and that you were here with me today. Did you mention Jonesboro, Arkansas? I did. Do I sound like I live in Jonesboro? No. No, I don't. But I live in Jonesboro, but I don't. But was I don't that where like you it. were reading yes. visitors? Yes. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Church, uh, a city of many churches is what they call themselves. But even in Jonesboro, Arkansas, 60% of people never in church. Even in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Thank you so much. Good to have you here.